welcome once again to A Novel Evening. I'm Danny. You can find me over on Instagram as at A Novel Evening Podcast and the same over on TikTok. I hope you're doing well. Um, It is definitely feeling like autumn here now. I feel like August is just disappearing. Summer's gone. It's now autumn. I'm just trying not to be mad about the lack of sunshine and get in the the full spirit. But for this episode, you're going to want to get cosy. You're going to want to snuggle up under a blanket and have a listen to this one. I'm joined by Amanda Prouse, and she is possibly one of the most prolific authors of contemporary fiction that I've certainly heard of. Um, We are talking 27 novels, two non-fiction, seven novella, nine short stories. That says it already, doesn't it? And she's here to talk to me all about her latest novel, All Good Things. If you love a bit of family drama, secret spilling, um, all the stuff coming out of parties, which is where it always happens, isn't it? At celebration. But this is the book for you. I'm super, super excited to welcome her onto the pod. I can't wait to talk to her all about the book and find out what she's going to bring for her novel evening. So a massive hello to Amanda. Hello. Hello. How lovely is this, sitting and having a chat on a lovely evening? You're looking very cosy as well. It feels very autumnal right now where you're sat. I kind of feel that I'm I'm more into lamps and big lights. I think the more wrinkles I get, the less I prefer bright lighting. And it's almost like it goes hand in hand. In fact, that's one of the joys of being middle-aged is that my eyesight's going and I can't see how bad the wrinkles are. When I take my glasses off, I could be Claudia Schiffer. <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. But I need to learn this. I'm sat under the harshest light there is. Yeah, so I don't need to do take that. a tip. Yeah, exactly. Lamp lights and no glasses. It's literally, it's the way ahead. I mean, forget plastic surgery. You don't need to. If I can't see it, don't worry about it. So it's marvellous. Soft mood lighting. There you go. <laughs> That's the rule. And thank you so much for joining me. This is such a pleasure. So you are out in the sticks, the same as me. So I don't know about you, but I feel like autumn is here where I am. Do you know what, Danny? I don't remember there being a summer this year. It kind of, you know, I think I bought a cosy. That was the kiss of death. I bought a new cosy and I've never worn it. And I thought, I'm going to put this on. I'm going to swim. I'm going to, yep. haven't had a chance, straight into the wellies and Uggs. And if I'm being honest, I quite like this weather because I like layering. I like covering my bum with a big jumper. And I like fires and I like tea and soup. So I think I'm more of a winter girl anyway. So actually it suits me just fine. Oh, I did the same. We had a whole list for the summer holidays of things we do. And it's just been so miserable. But then I feel less guilty if we don't do anything. I quite like it because I'm like, you should stay in on days like this. So if we just watch films all day, I feel far less guilty. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. It's a board game kind of weather, isn't it? Good book, board yeah. games and just snuggle up under a blanket. I'm a sucker for a good blanket, aren't you? <gasps> oh, that's, I've got them behind me. That's my can- fluffy, obviously listeners can't see it, but I have a fluffy, I have blankets everywhere. I do love to get under a blanket. I do. A good old blanket. It makes the world seem better, doesn't it? No matter what's going on in your life, get under a blanket. Everything's kind of all right. And when you're writing, what kind of environment do you like when you're getting down to, to writing? Well, it's very, I'm very dull, actually. I have a very boring life and my writing life is very boring. I tend to just curl into the corner of the sofa with a blanket on leg, of course, um, a bit of a lamp, stinky candle, always. You know, I, I I literally, I'll eat a sandwich out of a skip, Danny, to be honest. I'm not fussy, but I do insist on having a decent candle burning. You know, all the lovely brands that cost £8 million. Yeah, one of those you know, nice, Joe Malone, yeah, something You know something the ones, nice. yeah. yeah. Remortgage the house, 
just yep. to get the candle. That's where I'm at right now. Um, so yeah, lovely candle burning. Scents are quite important to me. And then I just get going. And to be honest, once I'm in the zone, anything can happen. You know, there could be dogs and chickens and goats clucking around. Not that goats cluck. There can be kids shouting. There can be anything going on. And I'm totally lost to it. I don't hear or see anything. It's quite lovely. Oh, that's interesting. Because so many people I have spoken to say, you know, they really need quiet. They have to be at a desk. They have to always be in like work mode. So it's really nice to hear that you can kind of just get cozy and close the world off. I write on a bus, I write in the doctor's waiting room, I write on a train, airport, anywhere. And I think it's because, I've thought about this a lot, so a lot of authors I speak to say, oh no, I exactly like you, they like the desk and the organised, I just, I don't work like that. And I grew up in a very working class household in a flat in the East End of London, and it was very busy and I was one of four. And uh, we had a two bedroom flat and my mum and dad also fostered kids. I know as if we didn't have enough you know, lack of space as it was. I mean, it was quite wonderful, but it was mad. And I was very used to sort of having to shut the world away by just falling into a book and making a quiet space. So I, I sort of I didn't realise it was going to be a superpower. But as I've got older, that sort of blocking out what's going on around me and being able to just commit to that, you know, whatever I'm reading or writing is a real skill. Well, I have to say, congratulations. All good things. I have my gorgeous proof copy here, which is just, it's such a fun cover. I love the little flames on it with the, that's Clever. my favourite. And it took me a minute to realise. So for people who are listening, you've got gorgeous confetti and then one of the bits is on fire. Which it's I quite clever. Immediately. <laughs> I didn't either. And to be honest, it wasn't until it actually came out. I thought, oh, I see what they mean. Now. They were talking about flame and I was going, yeah, that's fine because... My golden rule in publishing is never get involved in anything that isn't your expertise. So all I do is write them. And then there's brilliant people who understand how to edit, where all those dots and dashes go that I'm not very good at. Um, And then other people whose job is to design the covers. And I think, why would I get involved? Because I'm only going to say, well, I once read a book, you know, in 1986, that looked like this. And they're going to say, yeah, the world's moved on, Mandy, a bit. So I think they understand what's current, what's commercial. And I just let them do it. So I never interfere. I never really, you know, have a say. And sort of the first time I see it is when I get a book myself. And they were talking about the flame. And I thought, yeah, flame sounds good. No idea. Um, And then it arrived and there's just one wisp of flame coming off a piece of confetti, kind of indicating that even though it's a celebration all is not well very clever yeah which I absolutely love it's a little hint and I look I'm going to check my little piece of paper here because you have written a lot <laughs> so we have got 27 novels two non-fiction titles seven novellas and nine short stories and oh. I guess my question is does it ever get old does it always feel as exciting when you have a new book come out into the world it does. So I think I've done 35 novels, actually. Oh, Nine wow. novellas. I know, Danny. Update that list right now. Um, but essentially, I've only been writing for just over 10 years. So it is a lot. Um, I didn't start writing until I was in my 40s um, because I didn't think I had anything to write about. And I was quite sort of nervous of doing it. And you know when life's a bit pants or you're skint or you're fed up and you sort of have that mental escape hatch? And for a lot of people, they think it's a person... So a lot of people, if they're unhappy, think, oh, if only I'd chosen him, picked her, said yes, said no, turned left, turned right. And when you're doing the dishes or you're feeling a bit low in the car, you think about those times. And it's kind of a a lovely sort of mental blanket, I suppose, that you put on to help yourself get through the tough times. For me, it didn't matter if I was doing rubbish jobs like, you know, cleaning offices at night or working in grotty call centres or working in a pub or behind a bar. I always thought, well, that's okay, because one day I can write a book. And my life's going to change. 
And I know that many people think that. And I, I was aware it was just a, a real dream and I didn't think it would ever really happen. So when I was in my 40s and I sort of got the chance to write my first book, it felt really risky because I'd had this dream for so long and held it in my head as this sort of light at the end of the shitty tunnel. But I thought, gosh, supposing it's, I'm no good, supposing I can't do it, supposing no one reads it, supposing it doesn't feel as amazing as I think it will. So I think I was really anxious to do it because um, it really was putting my words where my where my mouth was, if you like. And um, yeah, so I, my first book, uh, yeah, 10 years ago, uh, just over 10 years ago now. I can't do the maths because that's not my strength. My that's neither. a lot of words written. But that many novels and novellas and short stories amongst, I'm sure you've written many other things as well. That's a lot of words that you've put yeah. out into the world. It's it's like, Danny. I know it sounds weird, but it's like something is, because I didn't do it till later in life, it's almost like it's someone has pulled the plug and it's all coming tumbling out and I can't stop. And I'm 55 now and I'm still learning my craft. So I just want to keep getting better. I want to keep doing it. And I have more ideas in my head than I could possibly write in my lifetime. So it's I'm very lucky that um, I have a very weird thing that goes on. And I, I've spoken to people about it before, but I thought this happened to everybody. But my books arrive in my head in about 20 seconds, maybe less. Complete, beginning, middle, end, twist, turns, everything. Like it's been downloaded into my head. And I see it like a film. And... The moment it happens, I start writing and I look as I'm doing it, as I'm talking to you, I look above the screen and I just start typing. And the first time I read it is when I finished it. But the whole time I'm writing, it's like I'm seeing a film and I have to almost write down what that film is. So it, it's very easy for me to write because I don't have to think, oh, I wonder where she's going or what happens or because I know exactly what's going to happen. I know everything about all my characters before I start. That's incredible. I've never, I've never spoken, you know, I've done many interviews now, but that's the first time someone said to me, you know, that entire plot and characters are almost fully fleshed. Mm, everything. I mean, and even this is, this is a freak you out even more, but I don't ever write a note or a plan or a post-it or I don't have a journal, nothing like that. I have a filing cabinet system in my head, which I've written about quite extensively. Um, and I put them in the filing cabinet under different, in different drawers, depending on so like for example to love and be loved I'm just looking in the drawer right now is under C for cliff because that's where it starts on a cliff so they're not logically stored but um I have them all in these drawers and some I will write some I won't some um have been languishing there for oh for years some are brand new and then I just when I start writing my next one which I I always write so I write every day so I'll finish one book at maybe midday send that off to my two editors one in the states and one in London I'll instantly go to the drawers and think, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll write you next. It's almost who's shouting loudest. And I start that one immediately. So I always have a book or two or three books on the go. It's incredible. And it's really refreshing also to hear you say, you know, you didn't start writing till in your 40s, because I think, as I said to you, I've gone back to university. I'm, you know, I'm 30. Oh, I've just turned 33 this week. So I'm 33 now. And I think there's this, we almost have it drilled into us from such a young age that you finish school you go to university and whatever you decide then, that's it. You've made your path now, you have to follow it. And I think it's really refreshing when you meet people who have kind of done, you know, I've done admin work, I've worked in shops and and I don't think I really still know exactly what I want to do. Like you, I love to write, but it's interesting how I feel like we're told you should know what you want to do straight out the gate. If you don't know, you're buggered. 
Danny, I remember being asked as a child in school, what do you want to do when you grow up? I'm thinking, I didn't even know what I want for my lunch. I'm still a bit like that. You know, I mean, as I say, and I right now I'm, I'm loving my life. I love my job. I'm really lucky. But who knows what I'll be doing in five years, 10 years, if I'll still be here. I mean, who knows? You know, we just don't know. And that's the wonderful thing. And what really, really distresses me more than anything, uh, my boys and their partners are all in their sort of late 20s, not far off your age, actually. And they say that they've always felt that like they're in a race. At school, yeah. it was like a race to get that grade, to be picked, to be selected, to be, you know, popular or clever or sporty or pretty or sexy or whatever. And then the moment they left school, it was like, well, you've got to go to university and then it's a race to get your degree. And then you've got to buy a house and then probably get married and then maybe have a baby and then get a promotion and then the car. And then, I mean, oh, my God, when does it stop? And my advice to my kids is just run your own race. Don't do it. Don't join in. You've got to be happy every day. You've got to just wake up and think, I don't mind being here. You know, I'm fairly happy to be here today. And just take the pressure off your own shoulders. Just say it's not for me. And I know that's not always possible. I know it's not. But I think um, I think the world is, is a very, very difficult place when you're young right now. I don't know how young people get out the blocks. I didn't know how to get out the blocks. And, and I was very lucky because I was born in a time where I was told, and it was true, that if I worked hard enough, I could have a home, I could afford rent, yep. I could put food on the table. All I had to do was work hard. It's not like that now. It doesn't matter how hard you work. You know, it's all too much competition, too much pressure. I think it's very difficult to be young. And we've got, you know, and, and you know, younger people like you and like my kids, they are the future. They are, um, you know, all that is good with the world is your innovation and your views and your ideas, things we haven't even thought of yet. Yeah. And the fact that you might be stifled because of this system, I find it heartbreaking. Yeah. And I think it's hard. I think social media is such a big part because you see, you know, you see billionaires at 18. You see people on the Forbes list in their 20s. And it's suddenly like the ages have gotten younger that people are achieving the almost the impossible. And the comparison is immediate. You can't help but think, well, you know, I'm 33 and you've got a 21-year-old with their own business. Or you've got, people, you know, 21-year-olds who have somehow managed to buy a house. And I know many of my friends have not been able to. And I think social media makes it look as though if you haven't got your life in check by the time you're 25, that's it. I think it's the same, you know, no matter what age you sort of look at social media. So my sort of equivalent would be that I look at many people I follow and think, well, gosh, look at her. She's, you know, making a tagine from scratch with organic ingredients. She's, you know, fire juggling, learning Mandarin, playing the violin. Her kids are out, you know, having this fantastic life. She's probably having great sex. She's definitely slim. She goes to the gym. I just about managed to get clean pants on every morning. Is it just me, Danny? No, no, no. <laughs> I'm I, coming out of the trenches of, I've been in some states over the summer holidays and I look at people, like you say, and there's some of my friends are crafting or they're baking wholesome treats with their kids and I'm basically just throwing marawams at them. Exactly, like, I know. Away. <laughs> and I remember that when mine were little saying, right, you know, here's a bowl of Haribo, go and watch some telly thinking <laughs> I am the worst mother in the world. But I actually, if I don't have half an hour to myself, I'm going to end up crying and in the playpen. So this is the best for all of us. Yeah. But uh, yeah, pressure, whatever way we look at it. And it's so important. We say it all the time, but we're really bad at it. Remembering that someone else's highlight, someone else's showreel, you know, isn't their real life. And all these young people who seem to be achieving these amazing things, 
I'd love to know what their happiness index is like. Mm. Yeah, and their stress levels and their, yeah, what is their life really like? And I think that leads us very neatly, actually, (laughs) by accident, to your novels. So for everybody listening who might not have picked up this book, have might not have seen it, tell us about All Good Things. Give us a little cliff notes of what happens in this book. Well, All Good Things is very different to my other novels because I very often write about someone's life, their whole life, or a saga over decades, or, you know, I really sort of um, can spin it out for a number of years. This book takes place pretty much in 24 hours, and it's the story of two families who live next door to each other. Um, One of them lives in that shiny house on the street, you know the one, Danny. They They probably have a lovely camper van, they definitely go on cruises. They uh, probably run together on a sunny morning. They've got shiny hair and new kitchens and it all just seems very perfect and wonderful. And they're called the Kellaways. And then the family that live next door are the Harrops. Um, very much the sort of family I think I relate to more and certainly the house I grew up in, which has the grotty front door with the paint peeling, you yep. know, weeds, <laughs> weeds and overflowing wheelie bins, if we'd had wheelie bins back in the day. Um, and I think that you always think, wow, What would it be like to live in that house with a hot tub? Wouldn't life be absolutely perfect? And I know certainly when I was younger, that was what I thought. You know, if you had a spare bedroom, oh, a spare bedroom just for in case. That's amazing. And you always think your own family are normal, don't you? Until you go to have tea at someone else's. And I remember going to tea at one of my friend's houses thinking, oh, stair carpet, fancy, you know. I remember this. I was, you know, I lived in a council house growing up and I can remember (laughs) going to someone's house and I think they had a conservatory and I was like, what is this? It's just a glass room for fun. What is this? Yeah, amazing. Yeah. I know. And it's just, but it's those sort of awakenings, isn't it? That really sort of make you think, oh, okay. So maybe we're not entirely normal. I mean, I don't ever want to be normal. Thank goodness. You know, being normal would be the worst thing in the world. But I think that sort of idea that the grass is always a little bit greener um, yeah. certainly sort of stayed with me in my younger years. And this book is very much about that. Each chapter is told by a different family member. And each person reveals a bit more of their story, their lifestyle. And I would say that by the time we get to the end, it's like having peeled away the layers of an onion. And the actual truth that we end up with is very different to what we first think the book's going to be when we start. Yeah. And I know you said your books come kind of fully formed in your head, but where do you think this story came from? Was there an inspiration point? Do you kind of know where this kind of originated from? I know exactly. I can tell you the day. We went to, uh, Simeon, my husband and I, we don't go out much because we don't like it. We'd rather be in. I'd rather be on the sofa watching a bit of MasterChef, you know, cornflakes for tea yep. and maybe an ice cream later. <laughs> not not healthy, but lovely. Um, as you can tell, I'm not a cordon bleu cook. Um, so we love watching things like MasterChef or rubbish movies. And we just sit on the sofa and one day we were like, oh, should we go out for our tea? It felt very fancy. We went to this Italian restaurant in a small little market town near where we live. And there was a very large table there dining, a family. And it was amazing. They were sort of having a party. I think there was about 11 of them. And it was noisy and you could hear the chink of glass and the plates were being passed around. And I felt like, oh, it was wonderful to observe. You felt part of it. It was exciting. Mm. And rather than chat to my husband, because I see him all the time, let's face it, why would I need to? I was more interested in listening to what was going on with this big table. Um, And when I looked, actually, I really looked, There was about three or four people who were having a lovely time. And there were many more that weren't. There was a couple of youngsters who were looking at their phones and a couple of women who were downcast, I would say. 
and one who was just guzzling wine as though that was her blanket and her solution to get through the evening. And I thought, oh my goodness, isn't that funny, that first glance? And I thought, isn't that perfect? And how I'd like to join them. But then second and third glance, I thought, no, it's it's really not what it seems. And I was driving home and it came in. I got my whoosh and I it, my story came in and that was it. Yeah, and this is set around a golden wedding anniversary. There's something, isn't there, about big family events. <laughs> when you know someone's got a 60th or a special wedding anniversary or a christening, there's always a, a sort of a bit of a nervousness. I know for me, whenever we've had family events, because they are the events where things happen. People you have know, a drink. <laughs> or two. But the thing is, everybody, everybody's family, no one's family is inverted commas, perfect. None of our families are. We all are. We're all flawed in our own ways. And with our family, we tend to tolerate those flaws. We even love each other because of those flaws. But it doesn't mean it's easy to all get along. It doesn't mean we like each other all the time, even though we might deeply love each other. There's always some little bit of friction, particularly with a large family. You know, someone might have said something or not said something or someone knows something, someone else doesn't. And people fall in and out of love and families break up and families reunite in different shapes and forms. And a family is a fluid thing these days. It's not like when I was growing up, you know, there was two parents and 2.4 kids and off you went to school every day and that was it. And I can remember in my class, for example, one girl, her parents were divorced. Oh, she was so exotic. You know, we couldn't work it out. It was like, yeah. so what do you mean? And she was like, well, my parents don't live together. We were like, how does that work? And, you know, where do you put your nighty case? And it was just absolutely fascinating to me. Now, of course, thank goodness, it's a very different world. You know, my husband and I, we are, we have formed a blended family. You know, I have two boys. I gave birth to one. I inherited the other. Bit like Iceland, buy one, get one free. I got the husband <laughs> and the child, which was wonderful. And, and, you know, we all love each other now. Has it been easy? No. Was it instantly perfect? Nope. Will it ever be? Probably not but we love each other enough to make it work. We're all really good mates and that's enough. And I think, as you say, when you see something from the outside, again, I was the, I was the girl whose parents were divorced. And Exotic. I people whose, yeah, people whose parents were still married. And that to me, I couldn't wrap my head around. So your parents been married for 20 years. Mm. How does, how does that work? How but does again, that work? It's about perception, isn't it? From how you see things on the outside. You presume, you know, my friend who had the conservatory and the very nice back garden and her parents were married and you never really know what's going on. I also love, Danny, that when you're older and you look back at those families or those times and you think, oh, actually, now I think about it, you know, they were desperately unhappy or now I think yeah. about it. And it's only with that sort of, you know, that uh, hindsight and that level of maturity that you get. I think it enables you to see things a bit differently, but um yeah, I think we're all just wrapped up the same, aren't we? We all want the same. We all want peace for ourselves, peace for our families, good night's sleep, food on the table, roofs over our head. It's not difficult, but it can feel difficult. And there is something, you know, within this book as well, there is something about the fall of people who are, you know, especially if you're someone who hasn't got a lot or you're someone who's in a struggling environment, when you start to see the cracks in those people, it's very interesting to see how we react to that. Because I think there is something about watching someone's fall from grace or someone who's up on the pedestal, seeing those cracks form. I think there's something within all of us, probably, as human beings. We have the urge to just tug a little bit to see what's going to fall out rather than helping put things back up. You know, I think it's really interesting. It's almost, um, it's quite a British thing. 
to build people up into this sort of you know mega start and we'll put them on a pedestal or whatever and then almost take a slight bit of enjoyment from watching them fall it's a terrible trait really but I know that when I've I've done quite a lot of work in the states and uh, I've been interviewed in America and the way that some of the readers react and say oh my god you know you've sold 10 million books this is amazing you came from nothing oh you are this is you know you're inspirational I think well I'm not really I'm just very very lucky you know and I work very hard and, but they're almost um congratulating you on the fact that you've come from nothing but here I've also been in circles where it's been a bit like oh you didn't go to that school and no, you, you don't read Shakespeare well actually as though I don't quite deserve that place at the table it's very different isn't it and it's hard when you're leaving perhaps more of a working class background. And it's also the other view of it is, oh, she, she thinks she's better than us now. So she's done this and you're trapped in that. I do think it's a very British thing because you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't in a lot of ways. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Danny. And that's why I think actually, I think sometimes about, you know, I have had some lovely success, but later in my life. And I'm quite happy because I think if I'd had it earlier in my life, I think I'd have found it definitely alienating from all the people I love and my friends and my family but also I know it doesn't make me happy and I know it's not important and I can say with absolute confidence if tomorrow I never sold another book I'd still write them because I love doing it but if I had to go back to working in Tesco happy I'd make great mates I'd have a laugh I, I look back at those jobs fondly you know, it wouldn't bother me to have to go back to it do I like being able to pay my bills yes I do do I sleep better because I don't have to worry about it yes I do however I'm not supremely happier. I'm not a different person. I'm just exactly the same person I always was. And I would happily, if everything crumbled tomorrow, you know, oh, I'd miss me, Olga. I would. I've got to say, Danny, I'd miss me, Olga. Other than that, no, no I wouldn't miss me. Drag it with you wherever you end up. <laughs> <laughs> in five years. I've only just worked out how to use it. Been in five years. It's been a bit rubbish, but um, I know I was too scared to ask anyone. I bought four Mary Berry books all saying, just pop it in the top oven. I'm thinking, I don't know what the top oven is. It was all a bit chaotic, but we've got there. So yeah, I would miss that, but not much else. And obviously, as you said, you have your books that you have filed away in your brain. Can you give us any hints on what you're working on at the moment? Obviously, you have lots going on in your head. Have you got anything that you're kind of most drawn to? Yeah, I've just finished. So the next book that comes out is a book that comes out in January called Very, Very Lucky. And wow. it's, yeah, it's really lovely, actually. I like it. It's a sort of study of grief, I suppose. And um, it's the story of two people, um, a man who loses his wife after 62 years of marriage. And he's a farmer and his life becomes very quiet and he's very lonely. And he lives in this big rattling farmhouse and he's completely lost and it's the story of a young woman who has a busy family a son with depression a daughter with issues a marriage that's just they don't have enough time for each other she's working in the green grocers and her best friend is diagnosed with a terminal illness and it's about death which we're not very good at talking about mm -hmm. and I decided to write about death because I think it's weird isn't it we celebrate our birthdays and we all talk about when we were born and where we were born and who was there any funny stories about the day and yet we're absolutely hopeless about talking about when our life ends, which it does and which it will. And I was two chapters in when my brother suddenly died and he was fantastic, absolutely fabulous. I adored, adored him. I adore him still. Um, and it was really hard. And I thought, gosh, what do I do? What do I do? So I thought, well, actually, I'm probably perfectly poised to write this book right now. Yeah. So I wrote it using my grief which was fresh and raw and difficult and 
unharnessed and untamed. And I think it really went down well on the page. And I'm very excited for it to come out because it's a book of hope. It's a book about loss, but it's an incredible book of positivity, hope and dealing with death. But it's not maudlin and it's not sad and it's not gruesome. It's nothing like that. It's just a positive love for what's gone before and how it can shape the future without that person that you've lost. Oh, that sounds beautiful, Amanda. I I lost someone very important to me last year. It's been a year ago. Um, yes. And I do agree that death is not something we're very good. We're very, I think, again, it's kind of a British thing as well. We tend to yeah. sweep it, sweep it away. I think as a Western society, you know, death takes place behind curtains or we, you know, inside boxes or we hide it away. So I very mm. much look forward to reading that novel. That sounds really Thank you, beautiful. darling. Yeah. So mine was a year ago, too. And I'm just starting to feel a bit better at you. I'm getting there. I think I yeah. was very good at burying a lot of it for a mm. while, but it always comes out. And I think it's only now I think I can talk. It was my grandfather who I lost, who was um, mm. a really, really important figure. And I think starting university was something very important to him. So when I started university and he wasn't there, I think mm. that was when it kind of hit. But I think now I'm able to talk about him again. He was a wonderful, wonderful man. Um, yeah. I think he'd been married to my grandma 62 years. I could be wrong. Amazing. But I think it's about yeah. that. Um, and he had so many wonderful stories. And I think I'm starting to feel like I can talk about him. Yeah, I get that totally. Now. So I couldn't yeah. talk about Simon for ages because he was very young and it was very unexpected and it was just so awful. Um, and it will always be awful. And I've accepted that it will always be awful. But actually, I'd be doing him a disservice if I couldn't say his name or listen to a piece of music that we used to, you know. And I, it's just started to, I'd say I've maybe chipped off some of the edges and it's just starting to feel a bit easier to handle. So I'm looking forward to my journey carrying on because it's uh, exhausting when it's hard and I'm looking forward to that getting easier. And uh, on another note, so after that book, uh, the next book is called Swimming to Lundy, which is the story of a young girl in Ilfracombe, which is one of my favourite places on the earth. And it's a metaphorical swimming to Lundy. She starts wild swimming uh, because are you even an author if you haven't written about wild swimming? Let's yeah. face it. I mean, you know, Danny, to be honest. <laughs> At this point, yeah, you've got to do it. <laughs> um, and it's just lovely. And it's it's a story about love at first sight, which um, I always thought was absolute pants until it happened to me. And it really did. And I've always thought, oh, it was a Prosecco, you know, veil or beer goggles or whatever you want to call it. Um, but it's quite wonderful. And she's 33 and she's almost given up on ever finding someone who's got her back, holding her safety net. She meets this, this, this man. But of course, it's not straightforward. And it's two stories that run concurrently. And it's hard to speak about how and why without giving you a spoiler. But the two stories are seemingly entirely unconnected until we get about two thirds of the way through the book. And it's like, ah, OK. And oh. then the penny clicks as to how. So, yeah. <laughs> Was that vague enough? That was so vague. I'm that sorry. was vague. No, but I, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued now. And look, it sounds like you're someone who you've got lots of different settings for your stories, very different stories. And I'm imagining for your novel evening, we could go anywhere. Because I feel like you've got some you've got some favorite places you've mentioned, but I'm intrigued to see what you're gonna bring to this. Well. I've decided after much thought, Danny, because I sort of, you know, toed and fro with, well, obviously I thought it's got to be on a Devonshire cliff top somewhere or a beautiful beach or, you know, all those sort of things. And then I realised that one place I dream about a lot 
Um, when I was younger, uh, when I was single, I used to go on holiday on my own quite a lot. That's quite sad, isn't it? But it was a really good no, way for I me to... No, I think that's wonderful. Because <laughs> we don't do that. We're not... No, that's brilliant. It was a really good way for me to calm my my sort of busy head and, and get my thoughts in order. My brain never switches off, and I wish it would. And I used to go to little Greek islands all by myself and literally take a boat from Athens and go out. And there was no tourism, and it was absolutely fantastic. And sort of live off honey and yogurt and befriend goats and local farmers and I look back on it so fondly and it really helped shape me as a person and understand what was important in the world learning that it wasn't stuff that it's actually people and all the people you talk to and so I've decided for our novel evening which um having spent the evening talking to you I would love you to come on and obviously we just sit on our own and chat all night wouldn't we I'm a given I just I just show up anyway (laughs) most guests don't know this I'm 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 myself that's my right (laughs) But I've decided <laughs> to have it um, in Corfu. But in 1935, at the time that Gerald Durrell was writing, um, My Family and Other Animals, where there was just dilapidation, peace, wild fields, you know, beautiful shores that were just untainted by hotels and neon and tourists. I'd like to go back to 1935 and have a beautiful supper with candles and local produce and all that lovely Greek, oh, can you imagine, like the olives and the lamb and the wine and the olive oil and the breads and the honey. I mean, I'm tasting it right now and I'm thinking I'm going to have to go and eat <laughs> after this, to be honest. But I think that would be pretty perfect as a setting for me because I can imagine what it would smell like, can you? Yeah. That's I actually went to Greece thing. this year. I took my children. Didn't. Oh, Yeah, we went to Rhodes. Um, my granddad loved Greece. It was someone that he went co- so many times. He taught himself Greek. He loved it. So I took the children out there. I hadn't been since I was probably seven years old. Amazing. And it's, I loved it. And sadly, it was where they just had the wildfires where we stayed. Mm-hmm. We were very mm-hmm. lucky, but... Like you say, the food and the the beaches, it's just beautiful. And all the people were so welcoming and yes. just lovely. And that Grecian blue, that particular colour oh, of the sky yeah. and the colour of the shutters and the domes on the churches yeah. and the morning warmth and the evening warmth and the sound of the, of the insects and just the temperature of the crystal clear water. And I think uh, I could happily spend you know, my end of days in Greece quite happily. Yeah. This is a perfect setting. I is very it, much approve. I'm it really very noticing. much is. Danny, I'm really noticing that everything we're talking about, we're like, and me, and me. Have you noticed yeah. we've got a very real synergy going on? It's lovely. It's just so lovely. It's brilliant. Um, I do. I love Greece. I love Greek food. I've been trying to replicate it since I came back, which is not the same. <laughs> it doesn't taste the same. I want the real deal. Yeah, I totally get it. Well, we would have it on this night, of course. Beautiful. Now, this the setting's wonderful. So it hinges a little bit on your guests. So no pressure. Well, I've got, I don't know if I've gone a bit left field, but I had to think about who I wanted to invite. And there are certain authors who have shaped my life, who changed my life. And there are people that I would have loved to have met and loved to have sat down with. And I was never one for sitting and reading Shakespeare or the classics or the latest book of prize. That's not for (laughs) me, you know, I just, I just want a really great story and I want to escape. And so I would invite Catherine Cookson, Maybe. Oh, my mum loved Catherine Cookson. Yes, I love my grandma Catherine loved her. Yes, and Mae Finchie, of course, Penny Vincenzi, um, and Colleen McCulloch, who wrote *The Thornbirds*, because yeah. these were the books. These were the women who were not necessarily 
the most intellectual writers of smart women, very smart women, but they were oh, writing yeah. the sort of stories of real women that you could put yourself in those characters' shoes and take every step with and know what they were feeling and want them to succeed and yeah. feel their loss and their pain. And I remember when I was about 14, I read The Thornbirds by Colleen McCulloch. I don't know if you've read it, Danny. I haven't. No, please tell me more. Danny, it's the most wonderful book. You have to read it. I I read it all the time. Um, and it is the first sort of grown-up book I read. And it's, it's set in the worlds of Australia. Oh, and it's the story of the Cleary family, who it's a real rags to riches. So they work for an incredibly, you know, um, horrid aunt who sort of keeps them all on a very tight leash in this blistering heat. Um, it's unrequited love. Maggie falls desperately in love with the local priest, Ralph de Bricassar, who is just this glorious, beautiful character in my mind. And so it's got the lot. It's got, you know, sexual tension, unrequited love, you know, a setting that was so alien to me. So I'm in East London and suddenly I, I wasn't just reading about the plains of Australia. I was there I was taking every step and I remember thinking if ever I wrote a book and I could make someone feel this way then that would be the most amazing thing and the same goes for Catherine Cookson who writes a lot obviously about her native northeast one particular book that I think about a lot is The Gambling Man again about um, love between the classes and her books were almost quite formulaic and I mean that with the utmost respect because she's my heroine but I knew it was going to happen pretty much but I still dived into every journey that she took me on and was completely lost to the pages and the way I describe it is reading a Catherine Cookson novel it's like you go on a destination and you go to the same place every single week but every time you take that journey you see something different you smell something different you encounter someone new that's what her books were like to me and same with Maeve Binchy same with Penny Vincenzi sort of yeah. slightly older women who wrote for women like me they wrote for women who were probably 40 plus 50 plus who wanted escape from their lives um so they'd be my ideal guest and it's beautiful I think you know these as you say these aren't kind of the intellectual reads and I'm putting that very much in quotation marks but these are books that sell these are books that women are buying time and time again and you know I read a lot of fantasy quite often it is very formulaic but for me that's like a comfort blanket because exactly. I know I know the enemies are going to fall in love I know that the, you know, the feisty heroine is going to get her power and she's going to win eventually. And that's you. That's what you need. It's, it is like a comfort blanket because you know what you're going to get at the end. But also, Danny, when life is tricky, and it's tricky for a lot of people right now, and, you know, cost of living crisis, there's lots of uncertainty in the world. It can feel like a shaky place. That familiarity, that comfort of finding an author you love and just sticking with their way of storytelling, it's like someone you love reading to you it's the same feeling it's like they're reading that story to you and you could sit and listen to that voice all night and when you watch coronation street or eastenders or whatever soap you want to watch you know there's not going to be an alien landing you know there's not going to be you know exactly what you're getting i don't know nowadays quite possibly <laughs> but it's very true actually but you know that sort of familiarity it's what yeah. you expect and it's just a little bit of becomes part of your routine and those books are very much that for me. And I think they're important. And this is where I usually ask if there's anyone who's not welcome to your evening, which I know is a tough question. I don't think there's anyone that would be unwelcome, but I think it would appeal to, to people who appreciate a simple dinner. It's not going to be fancy or flash. We're not going to dress up. I doubt I'll even brush my hair, to be honest, because <laughs> I haven't done that since 1987. Um, 
So if you're okay with just rolling your jeans up, you know, mucking in, cutting the bread, helping out, and just want warm wine, great chat, and maybe a paddle, then everyone is welcome. Oh, Amanda, I, I absolutely love that. This is a beautiful evening. I love that you've got your favourites there. This has been such a pleasure. And before I let you go and go and get a cup of tea and get under your blanket, I have to ask if you're reading anything at the moment. I have literally just started The queue. Um, oh, and the author's name has gone out of my head. Sarah. Oh. Danny. It's fabulous. It's called The queue. It's about 10 people who meet in the queue waiting to go and pay their respects to the Queen. Oh, okay. It's fantastic. Oh, Sarah, I'm so sorry for getting your surname. Danny, can you find it out and add it on? Because that's I just will absolutely, absolutely terrible. Find that you know what? I have, well, well, bear with me one moment. The queue. Oh, how terrible am I? I want to say Helmsley, but I don't think that's right. Oh, attention to detail, Mandy. Oh, I'm terrible. And I've read so many books. Then people say, yes, Alexandra Hemmingsley. That's it. Not Sarah. Let, can we do that again? Yeah. <laughs> this is what I mean. I can chop out pretty much anything at this point. <laughs> Just want me to go right back to asking if you're reading anything at the moment. <laughs> so before I let you go. And enjoy a cup of tea and get under a blanket. I have to ask if you're reading anything at the moment. I am. I've just started The Cue by Alexander Hemsley. Oh, and it's an absolute cracker. Very different um, and quite a really unusual premise. It's about 10 people who meet in the queue waiting to pay their respects for, the, for our late queen. Um, and it's just wonderful. Really, real joyful read with unexpected twists oh. and turns. I'm loving it. And I love when you get something that's that simple. It's such a simple concept, and obviously very timely because you know that was not that long ago. But I love how you can pick up on these sort of these stories of people. I do think that when I'm in a queue sometimes, and I think, who are you? That I'm going to stand with for the next however long because obviously we love to queue in Britain, don't we? For pretty much anything and everything. Um, and I often think, who, especially like with the Queen. Obviously, I couldn't go. <laughs> was not taking my two small children to experience that, but. People queued for hours. You must have gotten to know people in that queue. Yes, and it's such a novel idea, and literally, but I love it. I love the way that she's thought, oh, hang on a minute, you know, who are these people and how are they going to interact? And I haven't finished it, but I'm pretty sure it will carry on way beyond the queue. So I'm, I'm incredibly excited. But it's, you know, it's funny, if that's the way your brain works, if you're quite creative, you do have those thoughts about people standing next to you in the supermarket, don't you? At least I do. Go on, I wonder what's your story? You know, yeah. oh, you know why are you buying that? <laughs> yeah, I love it if someone comes up like a full trolley of alcohol or something. My brain, I'm like, I know you probably own a business, but I like to think there's something more nefarious going on here. <laughs> or you're just a same. parent in the in the summer holidays. <laughs> I know. It's hilarious. Wherever I go shopping, I always buy tons of fruit and vegetables and I hide my watsits and my, my cheese straws and all my rubbish underneath it in case I meet anyone I know. Isn't that terrible? That's so funny. Oh, you're that one with that. Oh, she's very healthy. She yes. loves her organic fruit and veg and all the craps underneath. <laughs> don't look below the courgette is all I can say. That's where I look. My minstrels are lurking and my Maltesers for emergencies. I've got a secret chocolate drawer. Is that bad? No. Do you know what I love? We used to have a chocolate drawer where I used to work. Mm. And I love that. I hide, I, you know, I have kids. I have to hide sweets everywhere. 
Yeah, I do. Although I live with grown-ups, so it feels worse in a way. And sometimes they'll say, have we got any chocolate? And I say, oh, I don't think so, because I'm thinking I'm not no, 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 I think when it comes to chocolate, all bets are off. You're entitled to your own hidden chocolate. I think that's just fair. And look, on that note, <laughs> with the hiding minstrels <laughs> under courgettes, this has been such a pleasure. I've had such a lovely evening chatting to you, Amanda. And I wish you all the best with the book. It's fantastic. It's obviously out now. It's out in the world. And I can't wait to read the next one. Thank you, Danny. What a lovely chat we've had. Honestly, I really loved it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Novel Evening. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed making it. Please remember to go over and rate, subscribe and review wherever you listen to your podcasts and check us out on Instagram at A Novel Evening Podcast and over on TikTok under the same name and we'll see you next week. Bye bye.